owner that's thinking about building a granny flat or secondary residence? And are you unsure about where to start? Or are you just curious about the building process? Well, you're in the right place because that's what we're going to cover in these podcasts. We are Jacqueline Volk and Robert Volk. We're a father-daughter team who own and run the Pod Canberra. If you have any questions or you're looking that you're looking to get answered in future podcasts, we'd love to answer them for you. So please leave any questions on our Facebook page at the Pod Canberra. And while you're there, you can give us a like. Now let's jump into today's topic. And regulations and approvals and a specialist. So he's going to chat to you about setbacks and zonings and easements, which is all really the first things to know when building a secondary residence. Okay. Hi, all. Um, I suppose the first thing I should mention is that what we are uh, talking about mainly uh, in the setback zonings and uh, easements is that we're talking about the ACT in a more specific way. Uh, we have built also in New South Wales or building at the moment in New South Wales. But generally speaking, I'm just going to run through quickly the uh, requirements for ACT. Um, setbacks is going to uh, be dependent on whether we're building in the front or rear of the property. If we're at the rear of the property, um, which is you know, someone's backyard where we're going to be building a, a secondary residence, has to be, have a rear setback minimum of four metres. Um, sometimes that rear setback also has easements um, which are affected by the utility uh, companies and they will sometimes ask for even a greater setback than the planning requirements. And so it's something we get uh, feedback from them before we'll get a full approvals anyway. Um, the zonings uh, is to do, oh, sorry, I should have gone back to more of the setbacks. That's the rear setback. The um, uh, side setback is also dependent on utility access requirement to an easement at the back where a side boundary may require a three meter minimum setback and then the other opposite side boundary would be 1.5 meters so that's the general rule uh it can move around a little bit but not a lot and it can vary if you're on a corner block and also if you have parklands beside you or behind you uh, if you have parklands there it's class as a secondary front boundary and then if you have a mm. corner block it's it's really the same thing so mm. um there it really depends on your block but essentially yes the basics are Yep. So, as I said, with uh, easements, uh, that can have an effect on the setback requirements as well on or off both, both side and rear, because easements aren't always just at the back of the block. They can be anywhere. Yes. So it's something to watch out for. Um, the size of any secondary residence uh, can be uh, a maximum in the ACT of 90 square metres. Uh, in New South Wales, it's 60 square metres or 33% of the existing residence in size, whichever is the greater. Uh, so in ACT, uh, we can work with 90 uh, in most of the cases, unless there is a large house on a small block, then we're dealing with a different situation where it's a maximum of 35% gross floor area. And that's both ground floor, upper, upper floor, it's all floor areas of living space. Is it the garage as well? Including garage, okay. yes, so that would have to be included. And um, the other issues, secondary residences do require a, a sec, uh, an actual dedicated car parking space, which is or has to be behind the building line. So you can't park out the front of the existing house. 
or on the verge or out on the street. So <laughs> yeah. it has to be somewhere on the block, in the block, and be able to get in and out. Um, so if we talk about the zoning, zoning uh, is to do with um, whether it is uh, a residential zone, um, can have two different types, is RZ1 uh, or RZ2. Uh, there are Z3s and 4s, tends to be more for uh, multi-unit type developments, which you know, we don't deal with. We're talking more today about RZ1 and RZ2. RZ1 is basically classified as just suburban zone, so that it's uh, only allowed to build a secondary residence. You can't do a, a, a separated dual occupancy. You, can't, you, can, uh, you can build a dual occupancy in RZ1, but you can't subdivide or separate it to sell. They always stay as one property to sell. Uh, RZ2 is different in that you are allowed to build a dual occupancy and also uh, a secondary residence and it can be sold separately if it's all um, separated. For, um, like subdivided. Yeah, subdivided and has all its own uh, uh, like electricity utilities. utilities. Yeah. yeah. So RZ, RZ1 is something which uh, is the, the most the common, most common yeah. uh, because it's just in suburban zones. Uh, so we go into approvals, uh, ACT planning, uh, the ones that we would look after you uh, as far as approvals, but any company would need to go through an approval process. Uh, and that is a full DA. Um, DA is done by the ACT planning if we're going through as a full secondary residence. There are alternatives to that where you can do it, uh, do it as an extension, but it can't have any uh, kitchen cooking or cooking facilities, facilities in there, yeah. which we have built a few that, that way. But and the, the build form is exactly the same, doesn't look any different other than the fact there's no cooking facilities in the kitchen. Mm. And essentially that's a, a much faster process because you can get the DA and the BA completed through the private certifier. Yes. Uh, and if you don't have cooking facilities, you can do that, which means you can potentially build a bit faster because you don't have to go through to the three months of the council approval. But if you are wanting it as a full secondary residence, um, you do need to comply with all of the, the rules and regulations with all the disability side of things. That's predominantly what we're talking uh, today about is the full secondary residence approval, which does go through council. And then that does the neighborhood consultation and the, BA, the DA approved. And then we go through a certifier after that. And feel free to look on ACT planning's website and you can go through the territory plan uh, search and, and look up secondary residence um, codes and rules and it'll give you a full list if you want to fall asleep late at night. This is the best, <laughs> the best way to do it, to read through it all. Otherwise, yeah, we're um, happy to sort of go through those sort of yeah, specific rules. Anyway, we'll continue on. And again, if you have any questions, pop them in the chat box and we'll answer them in the end. Yep. So I guess being at the secondary residence and the full compliant, which means that it needs to, it will have cooking facilities. We're going to go through a council. We have to comply with the accessibility rules of really the ACT government. We don't actually have to do this in New South Wales or anywhere else, but ACT is quite strict on this. Mm. So Rob will it, take you through. It came about uh, when there was always this uh, issue called granny flats and they had a, a policy for granny flats. 
uh, and that wasn't anything to do with secondary residences at that stage. They then combined um, the whole granny flat policy and the aging in place policies and decided to set up a, a whole new policy. I think it was back in about 2013, which is the um, secondary residence policy. And it just encompasses all of the issues that come up in those areas. And it's very separate from uh, a dual occupancy. And again, you can go online and read it all up if you want to. So disability is something that is part of the approval process and is not necessarily built initially that way, but it has to be planned that way. And what I mean by that is that um, you put in two sets of documents to the planning authority for approval, one that shows how it can be converted to be fully compliant for disability. Uh, and then the second set of plans would be what you actually build which uh, would involve, say, for example, steps and uh, other non-compliant issues that relate to uh, a secondary residence in the way it's built. But it has to be able to be converted easily uh, without moving walls and without um, doing any major costs so that it can be uh, dis disability compliant. So that's where it's, it's always good to have a bathroom that is disability, disability compliant up from the get-go because that's the sort of thing that's very costly and hard to fix in the in the future. Because essentially if the toilet is in the same spot and has the same holes as a disability toilet mm -hmm. then it's easily swapped over to if maybe an aging parent um, if they were to live in a secondary residence mm -hmm. they could if they were had to move into a wheelchair then it's easily adaptable uh, you can just add some grab rails and mm -hmm. everything is already built and pre-done pretty much for that to be in place. A lot of people don't actually, like in our experience, we haven't actually dealt with that, haven't, they've, um, uh, sorry, they've uh, got distracted. They haven't really gone back to the making it fully accessible. So everyone really has kind of kept it the way that they've built it, which is the, the non <laughs> disability version. Yeah, it's it's more that the, um, the 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 government want to be seen to to show that they've they're allowing for that aging in place uh, compliance issue, mm. and so that's where we have gone to lengths uh, as far as you know, well, to make it so that it's very minimal change. So essentially, things like getting a wheelchair and doing three sixties around a king size bed is required. Um, same in a living space, in the bathroom and in really one particular area of any house. So of the secondary residence, sorry. And then so the second bedroom doesn't have to be fully disability compliant, but one bedroom and all of the living areas do have to be. So you want to check that and make sure because otherwise uh, it might actually get knocked back with council because they won't actually see that, that you've got a disability plan in place um, for potential future. Also with parking, you need to allow for a 3.8 wide car space and that's for a wheelchair coming. That's just so that a, um, a wheelchair can come off the roof. Mm. And so it means that um, if, for example, you're dedicating a car space for uh, disability and it's already existing on the block and it's like in a carport, the height of the carport has to be able to get a wheelchair off the roof. So exactly. just little. So we have to take. You have to take into account all of these things when actually um, having a secondary residence and building a secondary residence. Yes. So 
to, to just sum it all up, it just means that it has to be able to be converted and has to be able to be proved that it can be converted before the planning authority will allow you uh, a DA approval. Mm. Uh, and so that's something that it needs to be um, able to, for example, go from the pod or from a secondary, secondary residence, residence <laughs> to the letterbox, for example. Uh, yes. And you've got to be able to put the bin out uh and it's got so to be within in a, a certain wheelchair. distance. Yeah, has and it's to. got to be compliant with um, AS 1428.1, which is the Australian Standards for Disability, uh, and it has to be able to show that it can be can be done. So, but but you don't initially build for that particular um, code or that requirement. It's just something that you can show that it can be done in the future. All right, great. So now we've got the really the next stage, which is the cost, the way of funding and some timeframes. So uh, I guess the cost, there are four major costs that you really need to, to think about. So the first cost is the planning and the approvals. So the plans uh, are usually done through an architect or a draftsman. So that's an additional cost. Then you've got, this is sorry, not additional costs, but these are all costs that you need to think about. Then with the DA costs, you've got a DA fee to lodge, you've got ACT government fees, then you've got the certifier fees, you've got then the government for the certification for the BA, then you've got all the consultants. So you'll have an energy efficiency engineer, you'll have a hydraulic engineer, a structural engineer, uh, potentially a disability architect to sign off on it. There are lots of people involved in that plans and approval process. And you want pretty much someone to organise that for you because it can be a bit of a headache and knowing the right people to deal with and get everything back to you on time. So that's really the, the one main, uh, the first main one, sorry. Then what we're going to go through is the second one, which is the build cost. So the construction, this is all pretty standard. You're building whatever you'd be building like a normal house with is pretty much the same as a secondary residence. Um, or if you go modular, you just wanna check all of the inclusions. Um, what exactly are the products that they're putting in your secondary residence? Because some might include way more, some may include just the bare bones of the product and then you have to completely fit it all out yourself. Uh, and it just depends on what you're wanting to do. Then you've got the connection costs. So this is the connection, the tie-in costs. We call it tie-in costs because we're tying in from the main residence, the plumbing and the electricity. So the plumbing is the stormwater, sewer and water. Water. Or it could be gas as well if you want and gas. And it could be gas. Yes, mm. exactly. And then... Um, and you tie that in from the tie of the actual house that actually can be separately metered um, for, or not for gas. Definitely not for gas. Gas company won't let you do it. But it um, can be for electricity. Yeah, electricity you can have in your current meter box if it needs to be increased in size. Uh, mm -hmm. That just has to allow for two meters. Uh, and that way you can have one for each build. So um, often to what happens is that when building in someone's backyard, power often comes from a pole in the backyard across to the house. That often needs to be um, relocated to put underground. Yeah. And so that's, again, an additional costs that uh, should be determined by anyone first before you start and know that these sorts of things are included in your costs. Definitely. So, uh, 
you would just don't want extras at the end of any you just want an all-encompassing contract that has got everything covered because that can add quite a few thousand dollars yes definitely watch out <laughs> for that quickly. especially upgrades because you'll probably need to upgrade to a three phase if you're not already on three phase because a secondary residence if you've got hot plates if you've got a you know, split system aircon uh it does and an oven and a microwave it does oh you've got a washing machine and a dryer it'll take up a full phase so if you've only on a one phase house you'll need to allow for that upgrade the last cost will be the site works. So you want to check and make sure uh, that if there's any kind of site cut, uh, leveling the site, putting retaining walls up. Um, we certainly have dealt with a bunch, some that are super easy that don't need any site works and some that are very difficult and need a lot of site works. So depending on the site, you want to factor all of that in and get that what Rob was saying, get that contract price and the details in the contract. But it should also be all on the plans that initially are drawn. Mm. It should show retaining walls. It should show exactly. uh, all of those sorts of things that are required. And that that way, when you do get a contract uh, from a builder, it then should have everything included in that contract. Uh, yes. Unless you have come with up with your own agreement that you're going to um, get someone to do these things but it's something where you just want to make sure everything's covered within the contract so that you don't have extras at the end that are un unknown at the time that you sign a contract. You just want to be well informed of everything that's exactly. got to be included. And ask, in costs are somewhere where yes, it can bite you badly. It can, it can. Um, and you just, yeah, you definitely want to ask the questions, no matter what, even if you think it's silly, even if you think you should know, mm. ask questions because we always say in the building industry, even us, just don't presume. Never that, assume or never, Yeah, never presume, never assume anything. Yes. <laughs> um, ways of funding, sorry, I'll be a bit quicker. So um, ways of funding, I mean, the most traditional way is bank funding. Obviously you can bank fund it, family fund it. Um, you can, sorry, you can self-fund it but traditionally it has been done through the bank. So what happens is a company will provide you with their proposal, you take it to the bank, they can potentially offer you a conditional approval based on uh, the, the proposal that you've obviously received from that company. But then to get an unconditional approval, you'll need actually a full contract and stamped plans. So in between that process, you might start off with that um, it might take about three months to get the full DA approval through the council. So you might be initially paying a deposit with a company, um, or you've got the unconditional approval. You usually have to pay like a five or 10% uh, initial deposit. And then you have to really wait the three months or however long it takes to get plans and approvals before the bank will actually release any funds to you. So you do have to have that kind of money up front. Uh, the bank can, you can organize to get that paid back through the loan. Um, but ultimately you wanna make sure that you've, you've got those initial funds. Uh, also banks like progress payments. So essentially uh, you, you're a builder um, for the secondary residence will organize photos and documentation to prove that they've reached a certain uh, spot in the progress of the build. And then they will apply that to the bank and then the bank will release the funds directly to the builder. Quite often the bank will send out an inspector. 
Yeah. They're usually on the big ones, like um, frame stage is usually a big one and obviously the practical completion are the two main ones. I think we've had mm. banks come and, and check it out, but otherwise they, they do rely on a lot of photos uh, unless they have people readily available. <laughs> yeah, it just depends on the bank. It does. Yeah. Uh, every bank is different. So you can ask your bank what the process is or your broker. Then we've got timeframes. So traditionally, I mean, really, this can blow out from a modular build, which can be, you know, two weeks of site works and then you can plonk it on the block. Or you can go from timeframes that could last you two years. <laughs> you really, it really depends on what company you're going with, what building you're going with. Um, standard builders, you know, for a normal house is 12 to 18 months it can be but technically for a secondary residence we like to work off a 12 week period so three months so we say three months to build uh, sorry three months to get approved and then three months to build and that should be pretty standard across board but sometimes it can blow out to about six months i've heard um, from other companies but um, again it's always really good to know about the time frames and have a look and see what and talk to previous customers of other companies to find out what their timeframes have actually been because it's it's very it's you know it varies, it, it a lot. varies mm. and yeah, you get weather problems you get the, uh, extra issues that happen on site that um, needs exactly. to be uh, you know this just takes up time you, you know, people have to wait sometimes for trades to be able to come in yeah so that's uh, there's always little uh, things that you uh, you never really expect to happen and yeah. they, they happen and so it can blow our time a little bit all righty so we're going to have a chat about some of the benefits uh of a secondary residence and this is predominantly our opinion of what we've experienced from uh some of the people that we've built our pods for but uh, I thought this would be good to share um, because of like, it's really just the pros of, of what we think. So first of all, um, I would just say it's like an investment opportunity. So we've had people gauge a very high rental income, but again, it really depends on the type of secondary residence you're going to put in. Mm. Obviously, if it's smaller, it's going to yield less if it's less modern um, or if it's a kit home, things like that can yield a lot less rent. Uh, so it really, as Rob always says, you kind of get what you pay for. So <laughs> if you'd want to live in it, then tenants would essentially want to live in it. But overall, if you're thinking about this, the, it's purely for investment, it's the three golden rules, you know, location, location, location. <laughs> yes. uh, but that's um, not always the reasons that people uh, do it for investment. It could be done through Airbnb and it's just something where people can come in and out for, in very comfortable um, accommodation if it's a well-built well secondary residence. Mm. Uh, so a place to live if renovating, a lot of people within today's market are jumping on the bandwagon of renovating their house. There's a lot of government schemes at the moment. Uh, some of them are probably expiring, but uh, it's, it's a place to live if you're renovating. We've had people come to us saying my house is going to take potentially two years to get renovated how soon can we get a secondary residence in the back and then that way they don't have to pay a bunch of rent uh, in that time that their house is being rented and they also get a like an added benefit to their block of land which leads me on to the next uh, topic of the value of the block so 
I've had mixed reviews on, uh, I guess, online of saying some people say that there is no added value to a, like a granny flat. And some people say there's huge added value to any blocks. Uh, I guess in, you can speak firsthand of your experience, Rob. The very first uh, secondary residence that I uh, built for myself was actually in Duffy. Uh, and this was actually prior to the policy even coming out for secondary residence. I did it as a, as a sleep out to start with, but it was actually, I ended up using it as an office. But what happened was um, we uh, purchased a property in Duffy. We added the uh, secondary residence. And when it was uh, something that was completed, we probably added an, an additional $300,000 to the sale price by the time we uh, finished it and built it. And, and then put it on the market and uh, it did very well for us. Mm. I've, I've had clients come back to us with the same, especially uh, with the rental yields and some agents come to us. And I mean, this is our particular product, but essentially uh, you really want to check from previous people's experience how much and from agents, they will know if you show them the actual product, whatever it is you're thinking of putting on, just ask them how much extra do you think this will add value to my place? Um, or if sometimes people have put, uh, I, I don't want to, I probably shouldn't say yurts, but <laughs> little little things that can act potentially even decrease. It really depends uh, on the situation. And I would definitely recommend chatting to agents and getting that info. I'm often asked to convert a double garage into a, um, a secondary residence. Mm. And that's all from my architecture side of things. And um, you know whether that's going to, you know, how much added value am I gonna get out of it? And I said, well, garage was always there, so probably not much. Mm. But if you put a new build in the back of the property and have it as a dedicated secondary residence, my feeling would be that would definitely add more value because it is something that is rentable and is going to be able to generate an income. Mm. And so from the people that I've heard that have put in secondary residences of a high quality, they are positively geared against the loan that they've borrowed. They're actually straight getting away. more money straight away mm. as soon as they rent it. Yeah. And um, rentals seem to be still very strong in Canberra. So Yeah, it's a strong rental market. Mm. Um, we'll jump through. So family living, obviously aging in place. A lot of people want to be close to their family or their aging parents and um, to put them in the backyard instead of a home. A lot of people have looked fondly upon that or just expanding the family home. The kids are growing up, want their own space. Uh, and it also with the added value, it, it's a kind of a, a no brainer. Then the working from home, this was probably my personal situation, uh, having my own professional space with an office and a spare bedroom certainly, um, certainly helped. So these are some of the stats. You can have a read through this, but we're going to actually chat about some of the, the most common ways that could stop you from getting a secondary residence. So we've had a lot of people saying, yes, they're really keen, but uh, they might actually not be able to have them. And this is things that you want to watch out for. So things like significant trees. So Rob, do you want to take mm. people through? It's, it's a question often asked because we'll be um, uh, asked to come out and have a look at a block and then it's got a big tree in the backyard. Uh, first of all, we've got to find out whether it is classified as uh, significant. Uh, and then once that's determined, it's then something that goes on the approved or sorry, the lodgement of the plans. 
for its removal to be able to build um, a secondary residence. Uh, sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes it's not possible, which means that the secondary residence just won't fit because the tree has to stay. And um, the, the rules around significant trees, especially if it becomes a protected tree, uh, makes it impossible. So that, that's something to watch out for. Something that um, uh, Rob has always mentioned to me when we're on site that I found very useful is if you can't hug it and get your hands around it to the other side, it's going to be a significant trick. Yeah. <laughs> Just quick little like tips. Um, and then obviously the setback requirements, three metres or three to four metres from the rear boundary, 1.5 from one side, three metres from the other side. That can really restrict certain blocks. So you really, a good idea to check this is on ACT Map I, so ACT Map I. It's a website that you can actually draw on sizes and shapes to, um, to see your own setbacks of your own block. So you just type in your block in section and it's super easy. I'll give you the details at the end if you'd like. And then also the space for parking because re secondary residences need three car spaces. So really it's two car spaces for the main residence. One must be undercover. And the third car space is for the secondary residence. Did I say that right? Yes. Great. Yes. <laughs> and then the secondary residence, that's, that is what needs to be that 3.8 metre wide space. It doesn't have to be undercover. It can literally just be gravel um, or a dirt spot, but it needs to be shown on plan that it's available. Um, I'm going to run through a couple of the cons. Obviously, some people will chat about land tax. Uh, so you will need to chat to your accountant about that, paying potentially more land tax because you've got more building on the block. Uh, tenants being close to the main residence, some tenants might not like that. Uh, you just need to work out different screening options. And then really the upgrades to the existing house can be extra money, so that can sometimes be a bit of a con. <laughs>